0: Section thirty three of London labour and the london poor volume two by henry mayhew this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by gillian HENRY of the dustmen continued the wages of the dustmen have been increased within the last seven years from sixpence per load to eightpence among the large contractors the small masters however still continue to pay sixpence per load This increase in the rate of remuneration was owing to the men complaining to the commissioners that they were not able to live upon what they earned at sixpence. An inquiry was made into the truth of the men's assertion, and the result was that the commissioners decided upon letting the contracts to such parties only as would undertake to pay a fair price to their workmen. The contractors accordingly increased the remuneration of the labourers. Since that principle... Masters have paid eightpence per load to the collectors. It is right, I should add, that I could not hear, though I made special inquiries on the subject, that the wages had been in any one instance reduced since free trade has come into operation. The usual hours of labor vary according to the mode of payment. The collectors, or men out with the cart, being paid by the load, work as long as the light lasts. The fillers in, and sifters, on the other hand, being paid by the day, work the ordinary hours, namely from six to six, with the regular intervals for meals. The summer is the worst time for all hands, for then the dust decreases in quantity. The collectors, however, make up for the slackness at this period by night work, and being paid by the piece or load at the dust business, are not discharged when their employment is less brisk. It has been shown that the dustmen who perambulate the streets usually collect five loads in a day. This, at ninepence per load, leaves them about one shilling, tenpence, halfpenny each, and so makes their weekly earnings amount to about eleven shillings, threepence, per week. Moreover, there are the perquisites from the houses whence they remove the dust, and further, the dust collectors are frequently employed at the night work, which is always a distinct matter from the dust collecting and so on and paid for independent of their regular weekly wages, so that from all I can gather, the average wages of the men appear to be nearer £1 a week than 15 shillings. Some admitted to me that in busy times they often earned 25 shillings a week. Then again, dust work, as with the weaving of silk, is a kind of family work. The husband, wife and children, unfortunately, all work at it, The consequence is that the earnings of the whole have to be added together in order to arrive at a notion of the aggregate gains. The following may therefore be taken as a fair average of the earnings of a dustman and his family when in full employment. The elder boys, when able to earn one shilling a day, set up for themselves and do not allow their wages to go into the common purse. Man, five loads per day or 30 loads per week, at fourpence-halfpenny per load, 11 shillings, threepence. Perquisites, or beer money, 2 shillings, ninepence halfpenny. Night work for 2 nights a week, 5 shillings. Total, 19 shillings and a halfpenny. Woman, or sifter, per week, at 1 shilling per day, 6 shillings. Perquisites, say threepence a day, 1 shilling, sixpence. Total, 7 shillings, sixpence. Child, threepence per day, carrying rags, bones and so on, one shilling sixpence total one pound eight shillings and a halfpenny these are the earnings it should be borne in mind of a family in full employment perhaps it may be fairly said that the earnings of the single men are on an average fifteen shillings a week and one pound for the family men all the year round now when we remember that the wages of many agricultural labourers are but eight shillings a week and the earnings of many needlewomen, not sixpence a day, it must be confessed that the remuneration of the dustman, and even of the dustwomen, is comparatively high. This certainly is not due to what Adam Smith, in his chapter on the difference of wages, terms the disagreeableness of the employment. The wages of labour, he says, vary with the ease or hardship, the cleanliness or dirtiness, the honourableness or dishonourableness of the employment. Nevertheless, it will be seen, when we come to treat of the nightmen that the most offensive and perhaps the least honourable of all trades is far from ranking among the best paid, as it should if the above principle held good. That the disagreeableness of the occupation may in a measure tend to decrease the competition among the labourers, there cannot be the least doubt, but that it will consequently induce, as political economy would have us believe, a larger amount of wages to accrue to each of the labourers, is certainly another of the many assertions of that science which must be pronounced not proven. For the dustmen are paid, if anything, less, and certainly not more than the usual rate of payment to the London labourers, and if the earnings rank high as times go, it is because all the members of the family from the very earliest age are able to work at the business, and so add to the general gains. The dustmen are, generally speaking, a hereditary race. When children, they are reared in the dustyard and are habituated to the work gradually as they grow up, after which, almost as a natural consequence, they follow the business for the remainder of their lives. These may be said to be born-and-bred dustmen. The numbers of the regular men are, however, from time to time recruited from the ranks of the many ill-paid labourers with which London abounds. When hands are wanted for any special occasion, an employer has only to go to any of the dock gates to find at all times hundreds of starving wretches anxiously watching for the chance of getting something to do, even at the rate of fourpence per hour. As the operation of emptying a dustbin requires only the ability to handle a shovel, which every labouring man can manage. All workmen, however unskilled, can at once engage in the occupation and it often happens that the men thus casually employed remain at the calling for the remainder of their lives. There are no houses of call whence the men are taken on when wanting work. There are certainly public houses which are denominated houses of call in the neighbourhood of every dust yard. But these are merely the drinking shops of the men whither they resort of an evening after the labour of the day is accomplished and whence they are furnished in the course of the afternoon with beer but such houses cannot be said to constitute the dustman's labour market as in the tailoring and other trades they being never resorted to as hiring places but rather used by the men only when hired if a master have not enough hands he usually inquires among his men who mostly know some who owing perhaps to the failure of their previous master in getting his usual contract are only casually employed at other places Such men are immediately engaged, in preference to others, but if these cannot be found, the contractors at once have recourse to the system already stated. The manner in which the dust is collected is very simple. The filler and the carrier perambulate the streets with a heavily built, high-box cart coated with a thick crust of filth and drawn by a clumsy-looking horse. These men used, before the passing of the late street act to ring a dull-sounding bell so as to give notice to housekeepers of their approach. But now they merely cry in a hoarse, unmusical voice, Dust, oye! Two men accompany the cart, which is furnished with a short ladder and two shovels and baskets. These baskets one of the men fills from the dustbin, and then helps them alternately, as fast as they are filled, upon the shoulder of the other man, who carries them one by one to the cart, which is placed immediately alongside the pavement in front of the house where they are at work. The carrier mounts up the side of the cart by means of the ladder, discharges into it the contents of the basket on his shoulder, and then returns below for the other basket, which his mate has filled for him in the interim. This process is pursued till all is cleared away, and repeated at different houses, till the cart is fully loaded. Then the men make the best of their way to the dust-yard, where they shoot the contents of the cart onto the heap and again proceed on their regular rounds. The dustmen in their appearance very much resemble the wagoners of the coal merchants. They generally wear knee-breeches, with ankle boots or gaiters, short dirty smock frocks, or coarse grey jackets and fantail hats. In one particular, however, They are at first sight distinguishable from the coal-merchant's men, for the latter are invariably black from coal-dust, while the dustmen, on the contrary, are grey with ashes. In their personal appearance, the dustmen are mostly tall, stalwart fellows. There is nothing sickly-looking about them, and yet a considerable part of their time is passed in the yards and in the midst of effluvia most offensive and, if we believe, zymotic theorists, as unhealthy to those unaccustomed to them. Nevertheless, the children, who may be said to be reared in the yard, and to have inhaled the stench of the dust-heap with their first breath, are healthy and strong. It is said, moreover, that during the plague in London, the dustmen were the persons who carted away the dead, and it remains a tradition among the class, to the present day, that not one of them died of the plague even during its greatest ravages. In Paris, too, it is well known that during the cholera of 1849, the quarter of Belleville, where the night soil and refuse of the city is deposited, escaped the freest from the pestilence. And in London, the dustmen boast that, during both the recent visitations of the cholera, they were altogether exempt from the disease. Look at that fellow, sir! said one of the dust contractors to me, pointing to his son, who was a stout, red-cheeked young man of about twenty. Do you see anything ailing about him? Well, he has been in the yard since he was born. There stands my house, just at the gate. So you see, he hadn't far to travel. And when quite a child, he used to play and root away here among the dust, all his time. I don't think he ever had a day's illness in his life.' The people about the yard are all used to the smell and don't complain about it. It's all stuff and nonsense, all this talk about dust yards being unhealthy. I've never done anything else all my days, and I don't think I look very ill. I shouldn't wonder now but what I'd be set down as being fresh from the seaside by those very fellows that write all this trash about a matter that they don't know just that about. And he snapped his fingers contemptuously in the air strutted about, apparently satisfied that he had the best of the argument. He was, in fact, a stout, jolly, red-faced man. Indeed, the dustmen, as a class, appear to be healthy, strong men, and extraordinary instances of longevity are common among them. I heard of one dustman who lived to be 115 years old. Another, named Wood, died at 100 and the well-known Richard Tyrrell died only a short time back, at the advanced age of 97. The misfortune is, that we have no large series of facts on this subject, so that the longevity and health of the dustmen might be compared with those of other classes. In almost all their habits, the dustmen are similar to the costermongers, with the exception that they seem to want their cunning and natural quickness, and that they have little or no predilection for gaming, costermongers, however, are essentially traders, and all trade is a species of gambling, the risking of a certain sum of money to obtain more, hence spring perhaps the gambling propensities of all low traders, such as costers and due clothes men, and hence too that natural sharpness which characterises the same classes. The dustmen, on the contrary, have regular employment and something like regular wages, and therefore rest content with what they can earn in their usual way of business. Very few of them understand cards, and I could not learn that they ever play at pitch-and-toss. I remarked, however, a number of parallel lines such as are used for playing shove halfpenny on a deal table in the tap-room frequented by them. The great amusement of their evening seems to be to smoke as many pipes of tobacco and drink as many pots of beer as possible. I believe it will be found that all persons in the habit of driving horses, such as cabmen, busmen, stagecoach drivers and so on, are peculiarly partial to intoxicating drinks. The cause of this I leave others to determine, merely observing that there would seem to be two reasons for it, The first is their frequent stopping at public houses to water or change their horses, so that the idea of drinking is repeatedly suggested to their minds, even if the practice be not expected of them. While the second reason is that being out continually in the wet, they resort to stimulating liquors as a preventive to colds, until at length a habit of drinking is formed. Moreover, From the mere fact of passing continually through the air, they are enabled to drink a greater quantity with comparative impunity. Be the cause, however, what it may, the dustmen spend a large proportion of their earnings in drink. There is always some public house in the neighbourhood of the dustyard, where they obtain credit from one week to another, and here they may be found every night, from the moment their work is done, drinking and smoking their long pipes their principal amusement consisting in chaffing each other. This chaffing consists of a species of scurrilous jokes, supposed to be given and taken in good part, and the noise and uproar occasioned thereby increases as the night advances and as the men get heated with liquor. Sometimes the joking ends in a general quarrel. The next morning, however, they are all as good friends as ever, and mutually agree in laying the blame on the cursed drink. One half at least of the dustman's earning is, I am assured, expended in drink, both man and woman assisting in squandering their money in this way. They usually live in rooms for which they pay from one shilling sixpence to two shillings per week rent, three or four dustmen and their wives frequently lodging in the same house. These rooms are cheerless looking and almost unfurnished and are always situate in some low street or lane, not far from the dust yard. The men have rarely any clothes but those in which they work. For their breakfast, the dustmen on their rounds mostly go to some cheap coffee house, where they get a pint or half pint of coffee, taking their bread with them as a matter of economy. Their midday meal is taken in the public house and is almost always bread and cheese and beer, or else a saveloy or a piece of fat pork or bacon, and at night they mostly wind up by deep potations at their favourite house of call. There are many dustmen now advanced in years, born and reared at the east end of London, who have never in the whole course of their lives been as far west as Temple Bar, who know nothing whatever of the affairs of the country, and who have never attended a place of worship. As an instance of the extreme ignorance of these people, I may mention that I was furnished by one of the contractors with the address of a dustman whom his master considered to be one of the most intelligent men in his employ. Being desirous of hearing his statement from his own lips, I sent for the man, and after some conversation with him, was proceeding to note down what he said, when the moment I opened my notebook and took the pencil in my hand, he started up, exclaiming, "'No, no! I'll have none of that there work. I'm not such a bee-fool, as you take me to be. I doesn't understand it, I tells you, and I'll not have it, now that's plain.' And so saying, he ran out of the room and descended the entire flight of stairs in two jumps. I followed him to explain, but unfortunately the pencil was still in one hand and the book in the other, and immediately I made my appearance at the door he took to his heels again, with three others, who seemed to be waiting for him there. One of the most difficult points in my labours is to make such men as these comprehend the object or use of my investigations. Among twenty men whom I met in one yard, there were only five who could read, and only two out of that five could write, even imperfectly. These two are looked up to by their companions as prodigies of learning and are listened to as oracles on all occasions, being believed to understand every subject thoroughly. It need hardly be added, however, that their acquirements are of the most meagre character. The dustmen are very partial to a song, and always prefer one of the doggerel street ballads, with what they call a jolly chorus, in which during their festivities they all join with Tentorian voices, at the conclusion, there is usually a loud stamping of feet and rattling of quart pots on the table, expressive of their approbation. The dustmen never frequent the twopenny hops, but sometimes make up a party for the theatre. They generally go in a body with their wives, if married, and their gals, if single. They are always to be found in the gallery, and greatly enjoy the melodrama performed at the second-class minor theatres especially if there be plenty of murdering scenes in them. The Garrick, previous to its being burnt, was a favourite resort of the East End Dustmen. Since that period, they have patronised the Pavilion and the City of London. The politics of the Dustmen are on a par with their literary attainments. They cannot be said to have any. I cannot say that they are Chartists, for they have no very clear knowledge of what the Charter requires They certainly have a confused notion that it is something against the government, and that the enactment of it would make them all right. But as to the nature of the benefits which it would confer upon them, or in what manner it would be likely to operate upon their interest, they have not, as a body, the slightest idea. They have a deep-rooted antipathy to the police, the magistrates, and all connected with the administration of justice, looking upon them as their natural enemies they associate with none but themselves and in the public houses where they resort there is a room set apart for the special use of the dusties as they are called where no others are allowed to intrude except introduced by one of themselves or at the special desire of the majority of the party and on such occasions the stranger is treated with great respect and consideration as to the morals of these people, it may easily be supposed that they are not of an overstreet character. One of the contractors said to me, I just trust one of them as far as I could fling a bull by the tail. But then, he added, with a callousness that proved the laxity of discipline among the men was due more to his neglect of his duty to them than from any special perversity on their parts. That's none of my business. They do my work, and that's all I want with them, and all I care about. You see, they're not like other people, they're reared to it. Their fathers before them were dustmen, and when lads, they go into the yard as sifters, and when they grow up, they take to the shovel and go out with the carts. They learn all they know in the dust-yards, and you may judge from that what their learning is likely to be. If they find anything among the dust, you may be sure that neither you nor I will ever hear anything about it. Ignorant as they are, they know a little too much for that. They know as well as here and there one, where the dolly shop is. But as I said before, that's none of my business. Let everyone look out for themselves, as I do, and then they need not care for anyone. Note, with such masters professing such principles, Though it should be stated that the sentiments expressed on this occasion are but similar to what i hear from the lower class of traders every day how can it be expected that these poor fellows can be above the level of the mere beasts of burden that they use as to their women continued the master i don't trouble my head about such things i believe the dustmen are as good to them as other men and I'm sure their wives would be as good as other women if they only had the chance of the best. But, you see, they're all such fellows for drink, that they spend most of their money that way, and then starve the poor women, and knock them about at a shocking rate, so that they have the life of dogs, or worse. I don't wonder at anything they do. Yes, they're all married, as far as I know. That is, they live together as man and wife, though they're not very particular, certainly, about the ceremony. The fact is, a regular dustman don't understand much about such matters, and I believe don't care much either. From all I could learn on this subject, it would appear that, for one dustman that is married, 20 live with women, but remain constant to them. Indeed, both men and women abide faithfully by each other, and for this reason, the woman earns nearly half as much as the man. If the men and women were careful and prudent, they might, I am assured, live well and comfortable, but by far the greater portion of the earnings of both go to the publican, for I am informed, on competent authority, that a dustman will not think of sitting down for a spree without his women. The children, as soon as they are able to go into the yard, help their mothers in picking out the rags, bones, and so on, from the sieve, and in putting them in the basket. They are never sent to school, and as soon as they are sufficiently strong are mostly employed in some capacity or other by the contractor, and in due time become dustmen themselves. Some of the children in the neighbourhood of the river are mudlarks, and others are bone-grubbers and rag-gatherers, on a small scale, neglected and thrown on their own resources at an early age, without any but the most depraved to guide them. It is no wonder to find that many of them turn thieves, To this state of the case, there are, however, some few exceptions. Some of the dustmen are prudent, well-behaved men and have decent homes. Many of this class have been agricultural labourers who, by distress or from some other cause, have found their way to London. This was the case with one whom I talked with. He had been a labourer in Essex, employed by a farmer named Isod, whom he spoke of as being a kind good man. Mr. Izzod had a large farm on the Earl of Mornington's estate, and after he had sunk his capital in the improvement of the land and was about to reap the fruits of his labour and his money, the farmer was ejected at a moment's notice, beggared and broken-hearted. This occurred near Roydon, in Essex. The labourer, finding it difficult to obtain work in the country, came to London, and discovering a cousin of his engaged in a dustyard, got employed through him at the same place, where he remains to the present day. This man was well clothed. He had good strong lace boots, grey worsted stockings, a stout pair of corduroy breeches, a short smock frock and fantail. He has kept himself aloof, I am told, from the drunkenness and dissipation of the dustman. He says that many of the new hands that get to dust work are mechanics or people who have been better off. And that these get thinking about what they have been till to drown their care They take to drinking and often become in the course of a year or so worse than the old hands Who have been reared to the business and have nothing at all to think about Among the dustmen, there is no society nor benefit Club Specially devoted to the class no provident institution Whence they can obtain relief in the event of sickness or accident The consequence is that, when ill or injured, they are obliged to obtain letters of admission to some of the hospitals, and there remain till cured. In cases of total incapacity for labour, their invariable refuge is the workhouse. Indeed, they look forward, whenever they foresee at all, to this asylum, as their resting place in old age, with the greatest equanimity, and talk of it as the house, par excellence, or as the big house, the great house or the old house. There are, however, scattered about in every part of London, numerous benefit clubs made up of working men of every description, such as old friends, odd fellows, foresters, and Birmingham societies. And with some one or other of these, the better class of dustmen are connected. The general rule, however, is that the men engaged in this trade belong to no benefit club, whatever and that, in the season of their adversity, they are utterly unprovided for, and consequently become burdens to the parishes wherein they happen to reside. I visited a large dust-yard at the east end of London, for the purpose of getting a statement from one of the men. My informant was, at the time of my visit, shoveling the sifted soil from one of the lesser heaps, and by a great effort of strength and activity, pitching each shovelful to the top of a lofty mound, somewhat resembling a pyramid opposite to him stood a little woman stoutly made and with her arms bare above the elbow she was his partner in the work and was pitching shovelful for shovelful with him to the summit of the heap she wore an old soiled cotton gown open in front and tucked up behind in the fashion of the last century she had clouts of old rags tied round her ankles to prevent the dust from getting into her shoes a sort of coarse towel fastened in front for an apron and a red handkerchief bound tightly round her head in this trim she worked away and not only kept pace with the man but often threw two shovels for his one although he was a tall powerful fellow she smiled when she saw me noticing her and seemed to continue her work with greater assiduity i learned that she was deaf and spoke so indistinctly that no stranger could understand her. She had also a defect in her sight, which latter circumstance had compelled her to abandon the sifting, as she could not well distinguish the various articles found in the dust-heap. The poor creature had therefore taken to the shovel, and now works with it every day, doing the labour of the strongest men. From the man above referred to, I obtained the following statement. Father was a dusty, was at it all his life, and grandfather afore him, for I can't tell how long. Father was allus a rumman Sich a beggar for lush. Vi, I'm blowed, if he wouldn't lush as much as half a dozen on them can lush now. Somehow the dusties haven't got the stuff in them, as they used to have. A few year ago the fellers would think nothing of lushing away, for five or six days, without never going anigh their home. I never was at a school in all my life. I don't know what it's good for. It may be very well for the likes of you, but I doesn't know it'd do a dusty any good. You see, when I'm not out with the cart, I digs here all day, and perhaps I'm up all night and digs away again the next day. What does I care for reading, or anything of that there kind, when I gets home after my work? I tell you what I likes, though. Why, I just likes two or three pipes a backer, and a pot or two of good heavy, and a song, and then I tumbles in with my sal, and I'm as happy as here and there, von. That there Salomine's a stunner, a regular stunner. There ain't never a woman can sift a heap quickerer nor my Sal. Sometimes she yarns as much as I does. The only thing is she's sich a beggar for lush that there Salomine, and then she kicks up sich jolly rows you never see the like in your life. That there's the only fault as I know on in Sal. But barring that, she's a hout and houter. And worth a half a dozen of t'other sifters, pick em out very likes. No, we ain't married exactly, though it's all one for all that. I sticks to Sal, and Sal sticks to I, and there's an end on it. What is it to any one? I recollects a picking the rags and things out of mother's sieve when I were a young un, and a putting them all in the heap just as it might be there. I was all as in a dustyard, I don't think I could do no how in no other place. You see, I wouldn't be happy like. I only knows how to work at the dust, cos I'm used to it, and so was father afore me. And I'll stick to it as long as I can. I yarns about half a bull Note two shillings, sixpence. End note. two a day. Take one day with another. Sal sometimes yarns as much, and when I goes out at night, I yarns a bob or two more, and so I gets along pretty tidy. Sometimes yarnin' more, and sometimes yarnin' less. I never was sick as I knows on, I've been queerish of a morning a good many times, but I doesn't call that sickness. It's only the lush and nothing more. The smell's nothing at all when you gets used to it, Lord bless you. You'd think nothing on it in a week's time. No, no more nor I do. There's twenty of us works here, wriggler. I don't think there's fun on them, except Scratchy Jack can read. But he can do it stunning. He's out with the cart now, but he's the chap as can patter to you, as long as he likes.' Concerning the capital and income of the London dust business, the following estimate may be given as to the amount of property invested in and accruing to the trade. It has been computed that there are 90 contractors, large and small. Of these, upwards of two thirds, or about 35, may be said to be in a considerable way of business, possessing many carts and horses, as well as employing a large body of people, some yards have as many as 150 hands connected with them. The remaining 55 masters are composed of small men, some of whom are known as running dustmen, that is to say, persons who collect the dust without any sanction from the parish. But the number belonging to this class has considerably diminished since the great deterioration in the price of breeze. Assuming then that the great and little master dustmen employ on an average between six and seven carts each, we have the following statement as to the capital of the London dust trade. 600 carts at 20 pounds each, 12,000 pounds, 600 horses at 25 pounds each, 15,000 pounds, 600 sets of harness at two pounds per set, 1,200 pounds, 600 ladders at five shillings each, 150 pounds, 1,200 baskets at 2 shillings each, 120 pounds, 1,200 shovels at 2 shillings each, 120 pounds, being a total capital of 28,590 pounds. If therefore we assert that the capital of this trade is between 25,000 pounds and 30,000 pounds in value, we shall not be far wrong either way. Of the annual income of the same trade, it is almost impossible to arrive at any positive results, but in the absence of all authentic information on the subject, we may make the subjoined conjecture. Income of the London dust trade. Some paid to contractors for the removal of dust from the 176 metropolitan parishes at £200 each parish £35,200. Some obtained for 900,000 loads of dust at 2 shillings sixpence per load, £112,500. Total income, £147,700. Thus it would appear that the total income of the dust trade may be taken at between £145,000 and £150,000 per annum. Against this, we have to set the yearly outgoings of the business, which may be roughly estimated as follows. Expenditure of the London Dust Trade Wages of 1,800 labourers at 10 shillings a week each, including sifters and carriers, £46,800. Keep of 600 horses at 10 shillings a week each, £15,600 wear and tear of stock in trade, £4,000. Rent for 90 yards at £100 a year each, large and small, £9,000. total, £75,400. The above estimates give us the following aggregate results. Total yearly incomings of the London dust trade, £147,700. Total yearly outgoings, £75,400. Total yearly profit £72,300. Hence it would appear that the profits of the dust contractors are very nearly at the rate of £100 per per cent on their expenditure. I do not think I have overestimated the incomings or underestimated the outgoings. At least I have striven to avoid doing so, in order that no injustice might be done to the members of the trade. This aggregate profit, when divided among the 90 contractors, will make the clear gains of each master dustman amount to about 800 pounds per annum. Of course, some derive considerably more than this amount, and some considerably less. Of the London Sewerage and Scavengery The subject I have now to treat, principally as regards street labour, but generally in its sanitary, social and economical bearings, may really be termed vast. It is of the cleansing of a capital city, with its thousands of miles of streets and roads on the surface, and its thousands of miles of sewers and drains under the surface of the earth. And first, let me deal with the subject in a historical point of view. Public scavengery, or street cleansing, From the earliest periods of our history, since municipal authority regulated the internal economy of our cities, has been an object of some attention. In the records of all our civic corporations may be found by-laws, or some equivalent measure, to enforce the cleansing of the streets. But these regulations were little enforced. It was ordered that the streets should be swept, but often enough men were not employed by the authorities to sweep them until after the Great Fire of London, and in many parts for years after that, the tradesman's apprentice swept the dirt from the front of his master's house and left it in the street, to be removed at the leisure of the scavenger. This was in the streets most famous for the wealth and commercial energy of the inhabitants. The streets inhabited by the poor, until about the beginning of the present century, were rarely swept at all. The unevenness of the pavement the accumulation of wet and mud in rainy weather, the want of footpaths, and sometimes even of grates and kennels, made Cooper, in one of his letters, describe a perambulation of some of these streets as going by water. Even this state of things was, however, an improvement. In the accounts of the London street broils and fights from the reign of Henry the Third more especially during the War of the Roses, down to the Civil War, which terminated in the beheading of Charles I, mention is more or less made of the combatants having availed themselves of the shelter of the rubbish in the streets. These mounds of rubbish were then kinds of street barricades, opposing the progress of passengers, like the piles of overturned omnibuses and other vehicles of the modern French street combatants. There is no doubt that in the older times these mounds were composed first of the earth dug out for the foundation of some building, or the sinking of some well, or, later on, the formation of some drain. For these works were often long in hand, not only from the interruptions of civil strife and from want of funds, but from indifference, owing to the long delay in their completion, and were often altogether abandoned after dusk the streets of the capital of england could not be traversed without lanterns or torches this was the case until the last forty or fifty years in nearly all the smaller towns of england but there the darkness was the principal obstacle in the inferior parts of old london however there were the additional inconveniences of broken limbs and robbery It would be easy to adduce instances from the olden writers in proof of all the above statements, but it seems idle to cite proofs of what is known to all. The care of the streets, however, as regards the removal of the dirt, or as the weather might be, the dust and mud, seems never to have been much of a national consideration. It was left to the corporations and the parishes, Each of these had its own especial arrangements for the collection and removal of dirt in its own streets, and as each parochial or municipal system generally differed in some respect or other, taken as a whole, there was no one general mode or system adopted. To all this, the street management of our own days, in the respect of scavengery and, as I shall show, of sewage, presents a decided improvement. This improvement in street management is not attributable to any public agitation, to any public and far less national manifestation of feeling. It was debated sometimes in courts of common council, in ward and parochial meetings, but the public generally seemed to have taken no express interest in the matter. The improvement seems to have established itself gradually from the improved tastes and habits of the people. Although generally left to the local powers, the subject of street cleansing and management, however, has not been entirely overlooked by Parliament. Among parliamentary enactments is the measure best known as Michael Angelo Taylor's Act, passed early in the present century, which requires all householders every morning to remove from the front of their premises any snow which may have fallen during the night, and so on, and so on. The late police acts also embrace subordinately the subject of street management. On the other hand, the sewers have long been the object of national care. Quote, the daily great damages and losses which have happened in many and diverse parts of this realm. Note, I give the spirit of the preamble of several acts of Parliament. End note as well by the reason of the outrageous flowings, surges, and course of the river, in and upon the marsh grounds, and other low places, heretofore through public wisdom won and made profitable for the great commonwealth of this realm, as also by occasion of land waters, and other outrageous springs, in and upon meadows, pastures, and other low grounds adjoining to rivers, floods, and other water courses caused parliamentary attention to be given to the subject. Until towards the latter part of the last century, however, the streets, even of the better order, were often flooded during heavy and continuous rains, owing to the sewers and drains having been choked, so that the sewage formed its way through the gratings into the streets and yards, flooding all the underground apartments and often the ground floors of the houses, as well as the public thoroughfares with filth. It is not many months since the neighbourhood of so modern a locality as Waterloo Bridge was flooded in this manner, and boats were used in the Belvedere and York roads. On the 1st of August 1846, after a tremendous storm of thunder, hail and rain, miles of the capital were literally under water. Hundreds of publicans beer sellers contained far more water than beer, and the damage done was enormous. These facts show that, though much has been accomplished towards the efficient sewerage of the metropolis, much remains to be accomplished still. The first statute on the subject of the public sewerage was as early as the ninth year of the reign of Henry Third. There were enactments also in most of the succeeding reigns, but they were all partial and conflicting, and related more to the local desiderata than to any system of sewerage for the public benefit until the reign of Henry VIII, when the Bill of Sewers was passed in 1531. This act provided for a more general system of sewerage in the cities and towns of the kingdom, requiring the main channels to be of certain depths and dimensions, according to the localities, situation and so on. In many parts of the country, the sewerage is still carried on according to the provisions in the Act of Henry VIII, but these provisions were modified, altered and or explained, by many subsequent statutes. Any uniformity which might have arisen from the observance of the same principles of sewerage was effectually checked by the measures adopted in London, more especially during the last 100 years. As the metropolis increased, new sewerage became necessary, and new local bodies were formed for its management. These were known as the Commissions of Sewers, And the members of those bodies acted independently one of another under the authority of their own acts of parliament each having its own board engineers clerks officers and workmen each commission was confined to its own district and did what was accounted best for its own district with little regard to any general plan of sewerage so that london was and in a great measure is sewered upon different principles as to the size of the sewers and drains the rates of inclination, and so on and so on. In 1847, there were eight of these districts and bodies, the City of London, the Tower Hamlets, St Catharines, Poplar and Blackwell, Holborn and Finsbury, Westminster and part of Middlesex, Surrey and Kent, and Greenwich. In 1848, these several bodies were concentrated by Act of Parliament and entitled the Metropolitan Commission of Sewers. But the City of London, as appears to be the case with every parliamentary measure affecting the metropolis, presents an exception, as it retains a separate jurisdiction and is not under the control of the general commissioners to whom Parliament has given authority over such matters. The management of the metropolitan scavengery and sewerage, therefore, differs in this respect. The scavengery is committed to the care of the several parishes, each making its own contract. The sewerage is consigned by Parliament to a body of commissioners. In both instances, however, the expenses are paid out of local rates. I shall now proceed to treat of each of these subjects separately, beginning with the cleansing of the streets. End of section 33